The talk tonight is on um, patterns of becoming to the five aggregates. This is the second in a series of talks on this theme of how we generate the sense of self based on changing impermanent aspects of our experience and how that happens in kind of familiar and continuing patterns of becoming. Last time we talked about this process based on the factor of perception and the proliferation based on what we perceive or papancha. Tonight we're going to talk about it from the point of view of the five aggregates and next week I'll talk about it based on dependent origination and also put more emphasis on the release factor, how we get free uh, from these cycles. But in all three of the talks, the basic theme is the concept that the self is not a steady, intrinsic, ongoing part of our experience, but is rather something that we generate over and over again by our own volitional actions. So tonight we're going to look at another way that that generation happens. And this formation of self isn't a trivial thing. It's kind of the root of our bondage. It's the root of the misunderstanding, the root of ignorance with which we approach existence. And I want to just take a kind of big view for a moment and say that it is based on our coming into existence as an individual embodied being in life. And it's this individual embodiment that is partly responsible for the sense of separation that we mistakenly take to be ultimate or absolute in some way, but isn't truly an ultimate or absolute separation you know, from other beings or, or from nature. But we mistakenly take this individuality to be confirmation of a of a separate, ongoing self. Now, in modern Western culture, this taking, taking birth is supposed to be a thing of great celebration. Oh, you're so lucky to have been born, and life is so wonderful, and it's all to be celebrated. But from a Buddhist perspective, this taking birth is a little bit problematic, because taking birth also involves us in aging, illness, and death. Not only that, but this individual separateness, seeming separateness, also leads us to a sense of isolation, loneliness, and then fear. We feel cut off from the root of our being, which is nature in its many aspects, both physical and mental. So again, the kind of biggest picture, we might reflect on how this came to be. And Rumi has a nice little poem that points to this when he says, Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? I have no idea. (laughs) I really like his honesty. (laughs) This is kind of our situation when we wander into the spiritual path. We don't really know what this life is supposed to be for or about. We may not still. So I love this pointing because there's, a, there's this deep mystery at the root of our individual existence. How did this come to be? How do we find ourselves in this world of so much beauty and so much suffering with a quality of intelligence and compassion and capacity for wisdom with all these other beings? It's extraordinary. When I was sitting my first three-month course, a friend of mine, somebody I got to know on the retreat, came up to Joseph Goldstein, who was teaching the course, in quite a, um, I won't say frenzy, but she was in a, a state of urgency. And she grabbed Joseph in the hallway and took him by the arm and said, Joseph, why are we here? And Joseph said, do you mean here on this retreat or, or here at all? And she said, here at all? Why are we here at all? And Joseph said, because you wanted to see and smell and taste and touch and hear. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? 
The Buddhist understanding is basically that we were drawn back into birth by sense desire, by wanting to experience what could be experienced through the five senses. But then that's what gets us in all this situation involving birth, aging, illness, death, and all the complications of of living. Nisargadatta Maharaj was a great teacher in India. He lived in Bombay and died in the early 90s, I think, who wrote a, a book was written about his teachings called I Am That, which for my taste, is second only to the Buddhist teachings for for depth and power and, and beauty. And Maharaj put it this way. He said, the desire for embodied existence is the root cause of trouble. So this wanting to experience the things of the senses is what involves us in all the difficulty of, of living. And this is the cycle of samsara wanting again and again and again to have this kind of sense contact. And again from Maharaj, all yogas have only one aim, and that is to save you from the calamity of separate existence. So that's also the purpose of the Buddha's teaching. So maybe the way to be saved is to question this sense of separation this sense that we are actually an isolated self going through this going through this journey so we can take a closer look at the creation of this sense of of i really for for all of us before we encounter the dharma the i is the center of the universe even after we encounter the dharma for a long time the i is the center of the universe everything revolves around this this me and it seems so self-evident but have you ever been able to locate it? Have you ever been able to locate this self, this thing called I? Where is its hiding place? Where is it found? The philosopher William James uh, put it this way, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. (laughs) It may be doing better than we do with it. And the Dalai Lama says that When we are sure that something is there but we can't actually find it, that's a sure sign of delusion, that we aren't understanding correctly. And in the classical uh, analogy, it is walking along a path in the woods, seeing something lying on the ground and being sure it's a snake and jumping back in fright, but looking more closely and finding out that it's just a bit of colored rope twined together. So our usual uh, habit is of seeing the self and thinking it's a snake. But the purpose of the yogas and dharma practice is to investigate carefully and when we see things as they are, there's no more fear. That's the understanding that the Buddha talked about. Part of this confusion around I is created by our language. And it's easy to see some of this confusion with some habitual ways of, of talking and thinking. I, I'm going to ask you a few questions and see how you, how you answer. First thing I'll ask is, how tall are you? This is not a difficult question. <laughs> so I would say, I'm 5'10". So when I say, I'm 5'10", and I say that without even thinking twice. It's just automatic, right? I'm 5'10", or you're 6 feet, or 5'4", or whatever. Here, we are equating the I with the body. You know, it's the body that's 5'10". So, we're saying, I am the body, and I am 5 feet 10 inches tall. Okay, let me ask you another question. What color are your eyes? Easy question. I'd say, my eyes are brown. So here, you are suddenly not the body, you're not the eyes, you're the owner of the eyes. These are my eyes. So are you the body or are you the owner of it, who's separate from it? You can't really be both, can you? Logically. Okay, what about um, if we look at the mind in the same way? Sometimes we might say, I'm happy or I'm sad, And then we equate ourselves with the feeling. 
I am happy, I am sad. Other times we talk about my joys and my sorrows. So again, are we the emotion or are we the owner of the emotion? These are four ways we use I. But maybe the most persistent way that we feel the I is that we imagine that it's somehow located right behind the eyes in the center of the head and it's always looking out on the world and it is what receives all the impressions of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and there's some kind of observer that's right back in there that's really receiving everything and then pulling all the levers, kind of the command and control center as well. Not there either. All these ways of thinking are, are incorrect. And the Buddha put it very in a very straightforward way. He said, in whatever way they conceive of self, the fact is ever other than that. And one of my teachers put it even more bluntly. He said, everything you think is wrong. <laughs> so all these ways we imagine the self to be, they can't be verified empirically. They're not true. You can't find such a self within the mind-body system. But let, let's go a little further. Let's look at this um, formation of self a little more closely. When we look around the room and we see you know, all the people here, as we look, we normally think that's a person, that's a person, that's a person, that's a person. In the Vasudhimagga, it's one of the ancient commentarial texts from uh, the 6th century. They say that someone who looks and sees a person hasn't studied the situation very closely. They say, if you're a skilled butcher and you're carving up a cattle, dead cattle, uh, to, to sell the pieces of meat, as you're cutting, you don't go cow, cow, cow. You go rump, sirloin, tenderloin, ribs, and so forth. In the same way, someone who has closely paid attention to the experience, the human experience, doesn't just say person. They've looked much more finely than that and they have more precise categories. So when the Buddha saw, I don't think he saw person. I think he saw in two ways. One is, and I'm talking about the whole field of human experience, what constitutes a human being? So it's mind and body and all the experience. One way is the six senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the objects of mind. That's one way that he often used to describe human experiences. He used it again and again and again. It maps very nicely onto our meditation practice. A lot of the instructions follow this schema of the six senses, and it's a complete description of human experience. Everything that happens fits within it. The Buddha employed this device mainly to cut through craving. He talked about how pleasant experience arises at the six sense doors and how we want it to be a certain way and don't want it to be another way. So the six sense model is used to cut through craving. But the other way that he described again and again our human experience was the five aggregates. And this model he used to cut through wrong view. The formation of self, the belief in self, is wrong view. The best way in the Buddhist description to undo that is the five aggregates. So that's what we're going to explore tonight. How self gets generated around the five aggregates and how to, how to loosen that identification. So just as we learn to see ourselves and others through this map of the five aggregates, we learn to see the way the Buddha saw. And we learn to see without the false sense of I or self. And that's the power of it. We align ourselves with right view and that uproots wrong view in the mind. 
Some people have told me they find this theme kind of intellectual and not very interesting. Uh, for that reason, it seems a little too abstract. And I just want to say that the time that this um, schema came alive for me was after the death of one of my older sisters. It was about 15 years ago now. It was quite a while ago. Um, she was five years older than me, and she died when she was reasonably young, in her, in her early 50s. And she died quite suddenly. She'd been relatively healthy. She had long-term illness, but she was quite healthy up until actually the day of her death. So it came as a shock to all of us. And I'd been on the phone with her just a week before, and she was very alive and vital. Um, and my sister was a strong personality. I, I loved her. I was close to her. Very energetic presence in the, her family and our family. And a delightful person. And when she died, I really had a hard time understanding how someone who had been so solid a week before could just not be there anymore. And I went through a period of grief that you know, lasted a couple of months and darkness and depression and so on. And then as I was in that and starting to come out of it, I really had an urgency to understand what death meant or what, what is dying. What happens when a human being dies? And the way that I came to understand it that made the most sense was through the five aggregates. And so it helped me really come to terms with what, what is living here and in death, what, what goes? And how do they get, how does what leaves get separated from what remains? You know, it's so mysterious. Okay, so the five aggregates will be the topic. The word in Pali is kanda, the five kanda. In Pali, it just means heap or bundle. The Sanskrit word is skanda. You might hear it referred to by either of those terms. And it was just a common, ordinary term in the day. So it could be thought of as the five heaps that make us up, the five bundles that make us up. Aggregate sounds a little too technical to me, like we're on some road-building exercise and you know there's asphalt and gravel and all that. I'm not so fond of it, but it's the common usage. The translation, though, that I like best is kinds of stuff. So these are just the five kinds of stuff that make up you and me. And I don't think any of it is too hard to, to come to terms with. So the five kinds of stuff that make us up are material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Some of these we've talked quite a lot about already. So I'll touch on them briefly, but I want to go into each of these these five. So the first one is material form, or I'll usually tonight I'll just say form, but it means matter. So the Pali word is uh, rupa, and sometimes it's translated as body, like this image behind me of the Buddha is sometimes called a Buddha rupa, the body of the Buddha, or the form of the Buddha. But rupa extends beyond just the body. It is um, bodies and all their interactions. Sometimes it's um, the word sight is also used in this area. Form, it gets translated as sight. So it's everything we can see and all the interactions among them. It's basically the whole material world. So it's all the physical forms you see as well as the interactions which are sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. So if you take a piece of physical matter, like a handful of rice, and you put it on your tongue, which is a physical matter, taste comes out of that. So that taste is also part of rupa. Sounds are part of rupa. If you hear the bell, that sound is considered part of material form. So it's our bodies and the sensations in them, and also all the other sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. The whole physical realm is included in rupa. So the sound is part of form, part of the first, as is the whole physical world. So the other four aggregates are all mental. 
There's just one physical, and that's form. All the physical senses are included. The other four aggregates are mental. And there was a question this morning about what constitutes the mind in Buddhism. The word mind is used in different ways. Um, So most often we won't use it to mean this, but basically all these other four aggregates make up what you could call mentality or the province of mind. So they, they are feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. Okay, feeling we've talked about quite a bit. It was used as the meditation instruction a few days ago. It's that quality that's in every sense contact of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's key in the Buddhist teachings because it's on the basis of feeling tone that we generate desire for the pleasant, aversion for the unpleasant, or delusion often for the neutral. So the reactive formations of mind spin out based upon this foundation of feeling tone. The Pali term is Vedana. So when you hear the bell... The feeling tone of that sound is generally pleasant, isn't it? I mean, it's just kind of a nice, harmonious ringing. The Japanese know how to make beautiful bells. They've been doing it for centuries. has a nice quality. But even more than that, for us, like Pavlov's dogs, that sound has a specific stimulus, <laughs> which is, it's the end of the sitting. Yay! So that's like one of the best sounds of the day, that sound. So it has a pleasant sound, both intrinsically and kind of by association, but there may be some people who don't like it. So it's important to understand feeling tone is a mental quality. It's not part of the sound itself. It's part of your mind receiving the form of sound. So some minds could feel that as pleasant, other minds could feel it as unpleasant. Or if I hit it louder, everybody might feel it as unpleasant. So this quality of feeling is variable. It's a nice little story about this. There's a 7-Eleven store in Southern California where a bunch of people were gathering in the parking lot in order to deal drugs. And they'd have to call the police frequently to break up the drug dealing and send the people away. Then they'd scatter, and when the police left, they'd come back and start dealing again. The store manager got tired of calling the police and tried to figure out a better way to get rid of the drug dealing on his premises because customers didn't want to come in when there was uh, dealing going on. So what he did is he started to play certain music through the loudspeakers of the 7-Eleven, and the music he played was Montavani. And I don't know if you remember Montavani. He, he had a big string section. It was kind of orchestral music with big strings and liked to do sentimental movie soundtracks. And I grew up on Montavani. My mother liked it. So I kind of grew up liking that music, uh, slightly sentimental and swelling and um, very emotional. But the dealers didn't like it. <laughs> so the 7-Eleven would put on Montavani and they'd clear out of the parking lot and go somewhere else because it sort of drove them crazy. So I experienced Montavani as pleasant, but they experienced it as very annoying, interfering. So we'll have different takes based on our conditioning. You know, it's kind of how do you feel into the thing. So Saida Utejaniya talks about it in a nice way. He says feeling is kind of like a verb. There's an act, almost an active engagement of our mind with the experience of the senses that then gives it a certain quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But it's not intrinsic to the thing itself, and that's why feeling tone or vedana is a mental quality, not physical. The third aggregate, the second part of the mental activity, is perception. The Pali word is sanya. We talked about this in the first talk as the basis from which proliferation uh, happens and how perception is going on all the time. As we look around the room, we kind of categorize the sights into things we recognize, like people and chairs and cushions and walls and lamps and so forth. 
Some of these categorizations have a rich association for us if we see a friend or a partner or someone we know. Some of them are fairly neutral, don't have a lot of uh, emotional charge. But what is interesting is that this perception is a learned activity. The data of sight is really just patches of color. It's really form and color and movement. You can get a little more of a sense of this if you cover one eye. And when you take away depth perception, you can kind of see more clearly that there are just patches there that don't have an intrinsic organization, but we learn to organize them. So this came through really clearly in a story that Oliver Sacks tells, the neurosurgeon, who had a patient who had been um, blind, I think since um, as a very young child, I think had a little bit of sight at a very young age and then had lost it until midlife. And then uh, an eye surgeon thought that they could do an operation to restore sight to this man, and Sachs was consulting as a neurosurgeon through the process. So the big moment came. The surgery had gone well. The patient was still in the hospital bed. His eyes were wrapped in a white bandage, and they were about to take the bandages off. And the surgeon was there, and the family members, and Sachs was there and everybody sort of expected that with this unveiling there would be this kind of miraculous, wow, I can see now. They took off the bandage and there was just silence and kind of a little bit of a confused, puzzled look on the patient's face. And the doctor said something like, can you see? And later the patient related that experience. And he said, when the bandages were taken off, the whole world was just a jumble of form and color and movements and a blur. And I didn't know what anything was. But when I heard the voice, can you see, I recognized it was my surgeon's voice. So I assumed that that blob that was drifting toward my eyes was his face. But other than that, I didn't know what anything was. So he had to relearn the process of perception. Those channels hadn't gotten wired up in the brain or they'd gotten lost because his sight was so long ago. And he never did get very good at perceiving. He got sort of functional in the world, but it never really became second nature to him. He was never able to quickly reestablish that faculty of perception. So Carol talked about last night how perception can get us in trouble if we don't see accurately and how the Buddha identified ways that we see, for example, permanence when the truth of things is impermanence or we perceive happiness where the truth of things is unsatisfactoriness (laughs) and things like that. So perception may or may not be accurate. The other thing perception can do is limit limit our seeing to a concept when there's a richer reality underneath. Example, you're sitting in meditation, there's some discomfort in your knee, and you label it pain. So that may be an accurate perception of the feeling around that sensation. can be experienced as painful. But sometimes when we use the word pain, we stop at the word and we forget to look what's the actual experience. So sometimes these labels block us from seeing more deeply into, more intimately into the actual nature of our experience. So a lot of of Zen practice revolves around how we perceive. Tell a story in a second. But just to say that, you know, this thing... If you just met it somewhere in the world, would you know it was a bell? Or would you think it might be a planter? Or could it be a very big monk's begging bowl? (laughs) Or if you turned it upside down, could you put it on a statue and wear it as a hat? All those things could happen, couldn't they? Or, you know, in Zen, the koan is often something like, 
What is this? If you say it is a striker, I will hit you. If you tell me it's not a striker, I will also hit you. (laughs) Quick, what is this? What I got from those stories was that if I sat Zen, I was going to get hit a lot. (laughs) And that's that's one reason I ended up in Vipassana. (laughs) So in Zen, they like to do these duels, you know, about perception and can you see the thing in itself and and not label it. So there's a story about this. Back in the 70s, you know, we were all just kind of coming out of the hippie era and all just kind of discovering the wonders of Eastern religions and mysticism and all that stuff. And great masters were starting to come to this country, you know, for the first time in a long time. So some meditation students in Boston discovered that two great masters from different traditions were in town at the same time. And they got them together at the house of some friends who told us this story later. I wasn't there, but I heard the story. So one of the masters was the Korean monk, Sansanim, who's a Korean Zen teacher. And the other master was Kalu Rinpoche, who was a very warm, beautiful, wise, old monk in the Tibetan tradition. So they brought them together in the home, the living room of some friends, and offered them tea and hoped that they'd you know, recognize each other's enlightenment and there would be these great sparks of wisdom from their meeting and recognition. It didn't quite go like that. But there's first the language problem. So they had translators. They both had good translators. But then it turns out there's this thing about spiritual traditions that they, you know, see things a certain way or expect things to be a certain way. So they sat down and they had a little chit-chat and then Sansanim went into his Zen thing which is he picked up an orange and he held it out toward Kalu Rinpoche and very intently said, what is this? And Kalu Rinpoche just sort of sat there doing his beads, doing some mantra, just very peaceful, totally undisturbed, just reflecting. Sansanim thought he's not quick enough. He held out again, what is this? Waiting for the answer of the koan. And finally, Kalu Rinpoche turned to his translator and said, Don't they have oranges in Korea? (laughs) So, this perception can be a lot of fun to play with, to see when we get it right and, and when we miss it. So, When we hear that rupa has pleasant feeling tone, we recognize it as, oh, that's the bell. That sound is the bell. And we know, moreover, that's the bell that ends the sitting. So we're free to get up and walk. The next of the mental aggregates, the the fourth aggregate total, is called mental formations. The Pali word is sankhara. And this is really a very broad and very important category because it includes all our emotions, thoughts, meditative states of mind, wholesome factors that um, develop in practice, like the factors of enlightenment, the five spiritual faculties, the Brahma-viharas, as well as the difficult afflictive emotions of fear and anger and greed and jealousy and so on. All of these are in the category of uh, mental formations. And we talked last time about how these basic movements of greed and aversion stem from an attempt. We're trying to accomplish some kind of security for ourselves through these movements of greed and and aversion and the covering over with delusion. So these are also sometimes called volitional formations, which means that these are things that there's some motivated energy behind. We'll talk more about this when we get to karma, but volition forms the essence of karma. Karma is action with a volition, and this category has a strong volitional component. These mind states are expressing, most of them are expressing some kind of intention or volition. When we first tune into how often greed, aversion, and delusion color our motivations, we often get this question, is there anything that's not coming out of greed, aversion, and delusion? Because they seem so uh, central. 
But there are. There are beautiful motivations of kindness and generosity and non-harming and restraint and so forth. Now, a lot of these ways that we feel are repetitive and conditioned and form patterns in our life and in our mind. And I want to come back and pick that up after we've explored the, the selfing a little bit. But I'll just make a note of it now and we'll come back. So, some minutes into a sit, we hear the sound of the bell, feeling tone is pleasant, perception is bell and sitting, then some formations come. You know, often we think at this time, oh, now I could sit forever. I feel so good. I could sit forever. And there's often a real wave of relief at that point. So these are the formations that attend the bell. And the last aggregate is consciousness. The Pali word is vijnana. We've talked about this a little bit. We'll explore it more in other talks. Consciousness is just that capacity of mind that you could say receives all the sense data. When we're seeing, we're conscious of a sight. When we're hearing, we're conscious of a sound. When we're smelling, we're conscious of a smell, and so on. When we feel an emotion, we're conscious of that feeling. It doesn't add anything to it. It's just the, the factor of mind that is revealing experience to us. You could say receiving it or holding it, however you like to think of it. But every moment of every moment that we're awake, we're having conscious experience of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and feelings. It's going on all the time. This is just the very bare knowing of the thing before feeling happens, before perception happens. Just the datum, like white square, which we interpret as wall. It's the consciousness in us that gives that experience anytime we're awake. So, as we've watched the bell ripple through all these other aggregates, it's consciousness that knows it at every step. Consciousness knows the form, consciousness knows the feeling, consciousness knows the perception, and consciousness knows those formations of relaxation and relief and thought. So, these are the five aggregates. An interesting thing about this list is that they're all present in every moment of experience. The six sense doors, you know, may be there or may not be there. So you can't always analyze smell, for instance, because sometimes we're not smelling anything. Sometimes we're not really tasting anything. But the aggregates are there in every experience, so we can investigate them and relate to them at any point. Okay. We can start to to investigate our experience through this map. And an interesting question to ask is, is it an exhaustive map? That is, can every part of our experience fit into one of these five categories or groupings? And I'll leave you to that, I'll leave that with you to explore, but I want to suggest that it can. So I want to suggest that the five aggregates cover our whole range of experience as human beings in the, in the realm of the senses. Every sense experience can be included in here. But there's a fairly central concept that isn't here. And that is the I. There is no mention of an I or a self anywhere in this list. And yet, we're saying... Maybe it includes all the aspects of human experience. So this is the reason that it can be so helpful to look in this way. We start to understand our experience independent of this notion of I. There's no center where all these things are landing. There's no being behind the eyes that's receiving all these. In any moment, there's just form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness happening. And all of these are fairly independent processes. They don't have a controller. They don't have an actor. They're just aspects of nature that are unrolling according to their own causes and conditions. And this is what 
human beings are made up of. So one has to ask, is there an I in this? Or does this constitute a self? So one way to ask that question is to say, maybe if taken apart, the self is nothing more than a bunch of aggregates, sort of put together in a certain way. Analogy. Assume everybody can recognize what this is. It's a pen, right? Everybody would agree to that. It's very easy to identify. There's no mistaking it. We all understand it in that way. But as we look at it more closely, kind of like the butcher taking apart the cuts of meat in a cow, we see that it's actually only made up of these five smaller parts. There's an ink cartridge, a barrel, a tip, a cap, and an end. That's all that it is. Is this a pen? We could debate about that, but we wouldn't all agree easily, would we? This is a pen. Because doesn't it really become a pen when we assemble it in the right way and the parts work together to support each other and then it fits in our hand in a certain way, we can write with it and it carries out the use for which it was designed. Now it's back to being a pen. But pen doesn't really exist as a separate thing. It's just a conglomeration of parts that are put together in a certain way. So that's the way the Buddha said we should try to understand the human being. There is a being here. We recognize that. That's helpful. It's helpful that we recognize that when Scott goes to bed tonight, he goes to his room. And when I go to bed tonight, I go to my room. And we don't mix that up. So that's useful in social discourse to say my room and Scott's room. But it doesn't mean that there's actually something called I within this conglomeration of pieces. When we look closely like that skilled butcher, there are only form, feeling, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. There's no I that it all glues together. But we don't see that. We've been kind of entranced by this word I since we were young enough to understand language, and so we've invested it with a sense of self, with a sense of I. So how do we do this? So the Buddha was asked, there's one sutta that details this very clearly. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya number 109, the Greater Discourse on the Full Moon Night. And somebody asked him, well, how does this view of the self come about? Or sometimes it's translated personality view. The Pali word is Sakaya Ditti. How do we create this view that there is a self and what makes it up? It's who we think we are. We create it and we extend it over time because we don't want to face the impermanent, unsolid nature of reality. So here's the Buddha's answer. An untaught, ordinary person, I mean somebody who hasn't encountered the Buddha's teachings, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. So that is, we create the I based on form in one of these four ways. I'll go through them in a little more detail. And then he repeats the same four formulations for feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So he identifies these four ways we create self for each of the five aggregates or 20 ways that human beings construct the sense of self based on the aggregates. This reflection could carry you through the whole rest of the month, or two months for those of you here here for that long. But let's just look at a little piece of it. Let's just look at how it relates to form. So he says, a person regards form as self. 
Simple statement of that is, I am the body. We looked at that early on. How tall are you? 5'10". We think, I am the body. This is one way we create self around form. Or self as possessing form. That is, this body is mine, or this is my body. My eyes are brown. It's a second way. We create a sense of self based on this aggregate of form. Or form as in self. Then we might say something like, this body is part of me. I'm bigger than this body, but this body is a part of who I am. That can be felt sometimes too. That's form as in the self. Or self is in form. That's I dwell within this body. That's sort of the observer behind the eyes piece. So it's very interesting in this very compact way. And some of the suttas are like this. They're really dense. The Buddha has outlined 20 ways that we create a sense of self based on the five aggregates where there really isn't an intrinsic self there. So this is what we can uh, start to see happening in our own experience, it's called, this is what we call identification. Identification is where we take an aspect of our experience and we say, that's I or mine. When we talk about experience to each other, it's fine to use the word I or mine. I had a sitting where my concentration was really steady for the whole hour. That's a fine thing to say in an interview. You don't need to say it to yourself. When you describe your experience to yourself, you don't need to use the word I or my. So you can notice when the thought of I arises and notice that maybe it's something extra. And here's an interesting way to consider it. All the different experiences, we, we load them up with a sense of I, but do they need it? For instance, we might say to ourselves, I have a pain in my knee. Do we really need to say my knee? Or could we just say there's a pain in the knee? Or I'm feeling afraid right now. Do we need to say I? Or can we just say fear is arising? Or I'm feeling really happy right now. Oh, happiness is arising. So an interesting question is, Does the I ever arise or exist by itself? Or does it only get generated when we lay claim to some other part of our experience? Do you ever discover the naked I? Or is it only I related to form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness? This would be interesting to know because maybe the I is only dependently arisen always based on something else that's happening to us. And what if we don't label it as we're, as we're feeling, don't label it I as we're feeling it? How does that feel? So part of the view of self personality view that we create is to extend over time. We think the self extends over time. If we didn't, we wouldn't be afraid of dying, right? If it was somebody else that was going to die, whether it's a year from now or 10 years or 50, it wouldn't bother us, right? But we think it's I that's going to die. So therefore, there's, there's anxiety about that. So we create this sense of self, which we want to endure over time, And we pin it on these aspects of our experience. But then in the sutta, the Buddha continues. If we identify with form, he asks the bhikkhus he's talking to, is form permanent or impermanent? After Carol's talk, we all know, right? Form is impermanent. Is what is impermanent totally satisfactory or eventually unsatisfactory? You have to say eventually unsatisfactory, right? Because it's going to change. 
Is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. So we take things that we know are going to change and we say, this is who I am. And we want to extend that I over time. But those two don't go together. All the things that we're claiming as I or mine eventually pass and then the I is kind of stranded, disappointed, hit that unsatisfactoriness. So the Buddha goes through these questions after form, also for feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So he was then asked, how does one see so that in regard to this body, there is no I-making and my-making? This is a lovely phrase. I-making and my-making. The Pali words are also great. Ahankara is I-making and Mamankara is my-making. How can we see this body without making I or mine around it? Because it's the making of I and my that get us into clinging to what is changing. The Buddha said, all form should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And then he repeats that for the other four aggregates. Feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. So this is kind of a nice phrase. This is a very practical phrase that you can play with in your practice. Anytime you experience something at any of the sense doors, any of the five aggregates, you can just remind yourself, not me, not mine, not who I am. This is the practice of non-identifying. This is the practice of not making I or my out of any aspect of sense experience. We simply remind ourselves everything that happens is impermanent, unsatisfactory, subject to change, therefore not me, not mine, not who I am. It's a very short reflection. It's not that difficult to add in a moment of experience. Nagarjuna, who was the great um, philosopher of emptiness a few hundred years outside the Buddha, put it this way. What is inside is me. What is outside is mine. It's kind of true, isn't it? The body, thoughts, and feelings we take as me. Outside things, you know, clothes, possessions, automobiles, etc., we take as mine. What is inside is me. What is outside is mine. When these thoughts and compulsions stop, repetition ceases and freedom dawns. That means all these patterns we've been weaving to try to construct an ongoing sense of self enduring over time stop when we stop making I and my. Freedom dawns. This is the opening to the great space. When we don't make I or mine the aggregates don't grip us. Or said more clearly, we don't grip them. It's taking a hold through grasping that generates this sense of self. And when the aggregates don't grip us, we're not caught, we're not bound by them. So this sutta continues, the Buddha speaking, seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness. Being disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, one's mind is liberated. When it is liberated, one understands. Birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more renewal of becoming. So this insight happened a lot for people in the Buddhist day. He would give one discourse. 60 people, 100 people would get awakened. So here's just one little story of that. This is a wanderer named Bahia. 
Bahia was living by the sea, quite a long way from where the Buddha was. He was spiritually developed. He had a lot of supporters who respected and revered him as a teacher and practitioner. And he often thought to himself, am I fully enlightened? That question might have been a clue. (laughs) Or he said, or am I on the way to becoming fully enlightened? Finally, it said, one of the devas came down and gave him a little tip. He said, Bahia, you're not enlightened and you're not even on the path to enlightenment. He said, oh, is there an, is there an awakened one somewhere? And they said, yes, there is. Gautama Buddha, he's living in the town of Savati in northern India and he proclaims the Dhamma that allows people to reach awakening. And Bahia immediately decided he would leave his town and go there to meet the Buddha. And so he did. And he traveled as fast as he could, only staying overnight at each stop along the way. So he arrived in Savati and went to the dwelling place of the Buddha and asked for the Buddha, but the Buddha was on alms round in the town. So he immediately went to the town and noticed this very noble being with a great deal of calm, uh, poised bearing, kind of regal countenance, walking up and down the street, collecting his alms. So Bahi immediately approached the Buddha, bowed down at his feet, touched his head to the Buddha's feet, and said, "Um, Blessed one, I have come a long way. Please teach me your Dhamma. I want to understand. And the Buddha said, Bahia, this is not the time for it. I'm collecting my alms food. And Bahia replied, Oh, blessed one, I have come a long way. Who knows how long you will live or I will live. Please teach me the Dhamma in brief so that I can understand. The second time he asked, the second time he was turned down, the Buddha said, No, this is not the time for it. I'm collecting alms food. So he asked again the same thing. Who knows how long I will live or you will live? Please teach me. So the Buddha said, All right, let me give you this teaching in brief. Bahia, this is how you should train. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognized, let there be just the cognized. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Bahia, who was already ripe and developed, heard that and fully awakened on the spot. And then the Buddha could continue his alms round which he did. And an hour later, Bahia was walking across a field where a cow was guarding a young calf and evidently felt threatened, charged Bahia, gored him, and he died. So think back to his question. Who knows how long you will live or I will live? Please teach me the Dhamma. The Buddha taught, he awakened, and an hour later, he had died. But this, this teaching that he received is one of the pithiest pointings in all of the suttas to this truth. Because in the scene, let there be just the scene, means there's no I added to that experience. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, then you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So let's sit together for a minute and quiet.
Therefore, all five aggregates should be seen as they really are, with proper wisdom, thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.